0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to Sports Time Machine here on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. I'm Anna and Each week, we head down memory lane as I take you back in time and remember some of the greatest moments in sports history. Leave your flux capacitor at home. All you need to do is subscribe to the show on iTunes or any of your other favorite directories like Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. Now, there are moments that define not only a team and its players, but also a franchise. Moments that make you ponder, if that play didn't happen, how would it have altered a team's course? it's easy to look back and analyze what went right and what went wrong. But no one can ever truly predict the future and what could have been. There's too many variables. Now, there's one point in time in the San Francisco 49ers history that stands out as the pinnacle moment that began it all, the catch. Now, the 49ers went through an incredible stretch of five championships in 14 seasons, a dynastic run that made Joe Montana a household name. The beginning of the magic all points to January 10th, 1982, the NFC Championship game against the Dallas Cowboys. I'll be joined in a bit by Ray Ratto, sports columnist and Bay Area radio host for ninety-five-seven. The Game in San Francisco. Now, Ray had a front row seat to the action that day. He was covering the game, but has what many sports reporters don't actually have. And that's proof that he was there. Because there's a famous picture of the catch by Dwight that was on the front page of the San Francisco Examiner. And while everyone is enamored by the phenomenal catch from number 87, someone you can't miss right behind him is Ray. I talked to Ray about the picture, what it was like that day, and what could have happened if that play didn't happen. It's a great conversation. You don't want to miss it. But first, let's set the stage. A cool January night at Candlestick Park. It's the NFC Championship between the Cowboys and an up-and-coming 49ers team. The Cowboys dominated the NFC since the conference's inception in 1970. But this was a new decade. Three months before the conference championship, Dallas was embarrassed by the Niners, losing 45 to 14. But this time, they weren't going to let the game get out of hand. San Francisco started out strong, but Tom Landry's Cowboys never gave up. Fourth quarter, Dallas had a 27 to 21 advantage with 4 minutes 54 seconds left in the game. San Francisco had the ball at their own 11. Montana led the 49ers 83 yards to the Dallas 6-yard line. Then the magic happened. 58 seconds on the clock, third and three. And who better to call such an incredible game than the one and only Vin Scully? For that, here's sound from the past.
1: So you have fifty nine seconds
0: left in the game the Cowboys have two timeouts the 49ers have one and you know what for one of the rare times what they thought was going to be a barn burner is exactly that. That's exactly what we thought it was going to be yeah. and that's a, what, a, what's what we're seeing here this afternoon what a sensational game talking about six
1: Don Landry is six yards away from his sixth Super Bowl course for the upstart 49ers they're six yards away from Pontiac third and three the right side
0: possibly Montana looking looking throwing in the end zone. Courtesy of the NFL and CBS I can never get enough Vince Scully He's so poetic and paints an incredible picture We've heard what he saw in the booth But now let's get another perspective of the catch From Ray Ratto Roads? Well we're going, we don't need Roads All right, well, you can hear him on Damon Rado and Kolsky from 2 to 6 on 95.7 The Game in San Francisco. You can also read his work on Defector Media. He's been a journalist since, well, I'll let you answer that, Ray. Raymond Rado, thank you, first off, so much for joining me today. How are you doing?
1: I'm still horizontal. <laughs> um, well, I'm still vertical. Actually, yeah, I was going to say. But I'm trying to avoid.
0: Yeah, let's not um, do that. And I'm doing fine.
1: I, got, I have remarkably few complaints given the fact that, well, the planet is... Burning itself into a cinder, so yeah, everything sucks, but it sucks less for me than others.
0: Well, I am happy that you are doing well and staying vertical. That is the key right now. But let's talk about you. When did you start on this crazy world we call media?
1: Oh God, <laughs> the Earth was still cooling. Um, I, I mean, i i i was I was writing for a little newspaper when I was in high school. So I guess it starts there. So that would be essentially like 50 years, as preposterous as that seems. But for money, uh, since 73, when I got a job at the the old, you know, non-throwaway San Francisco Examiner.
0: Okay. When did you start covering sports? Uh, Then? I mean, I've always done sports. The
1: the allure of the four-car fatal at 4 a.m. has never sort of caught my fancy. So it, it, it's always been it's always been the trivia of sports, which has become less trivial as the money's gotten big.
0: Well, now, I earlier just played the highlights of the catch. But before we get talking about the play itself in a bit, one of the things big reason why I want to talk to you about the catch is that you were right there. And if you look at that iconic picture that was in the San Francisco Examiner of Dwight Clark making the catch, You see a little bit younger version of Raymond Rado in the background, young journalist at the time. I'm just thinking it must have been surreal to think that you were part of that moment. What was it like being so up close and personal?
1: Well, it it didn't seem like a big deal at the time, only because at Candlestick Park, that's how all the writers and, and media people got downstairs. They had to walk through the, you know, they had to walk through the stands, um, get down on the field, and then walk around the field to the other side to get closer to where the locker rooms were. So I didn't really think of it as some sort of iconic bit of brilliance because it wasn't. It was what everybody did. Um, when, we got, when we all got downstairs, um, 49ers had the ball, and they were marching. They were trying to get a drive going toward the end of the field that nobody ever went to. So I just said, I just decided, well, this is probably the direction in which the game is going to be decided. It was just a, a blind guess. But I went toward that, that side of the field in that corner of the end zone. And the only reason I picked that corner of the end zone is because Joe Montana is right-handed. So I figured, you know, if push came to shove and there was a play that was going to be made, he was going to be going to his right, which would be to the corner of the end zone where I went. And I just planted myself in a place where I could see. So it was guesswork combined with luck that I got caught in that famous John Story picture. It it wasn't an act of brilliant planning or or sort of, you know, five-dimensional chess. I just played percentages.
0: I still think it was a pretty great move on your part, actually. But now at this point in your career, what's it like looking at that picture in retrospect?
1: Well, the thing that I remember is that
0: I had a better look at Everson Walls, the, the
1: Cowboys defender, mm-hmm. than I did Clark. And I remember when Clark went up and caught the ball, I remember Walls uh, sort of shouting, although nobody could hear it, you know, in the din of the crowd. He, he, dropped, a, he dropped a very visible F-bomb because he knew the game had just been ended so that's the thing that comes to mind with me and then all of a sudden there's this this wall of noise because it was a cathartic moment for that franchise which had never won a championship before and never even really played for one so it was probably the, it was the biggest moment you know in the history of the 49ers to that to that day and i was i mean it, it wasn't that i was part of it i was trying to capture as much of what I saw as I could. So I was sort of in work mode. You know, everybody else could figure out what the history was. I was just trying to, you know, get something written down in my notebook so that I'd go upstairs and write about it later.
0: Well, I will say, though, I did dig the white tie you were wearing that day. Were you, was that your kind of go-to 80s style? No, I almost
1: never wore a tie. And having seen the photo, I decided I would never wear one again. <laughs> and other than the day of my wedding, I have. In other words, I looked, like, I looked like an idiot. Not at all. I loved it. Yeah. You know what? It, it, it was seeing that <laughs> picture that convinced me that it seems odd for sports writers to get dressed up for an event that has nothing to do with them or, or, for that matter, you know, dignity. I mean, you know, football is the kind of game where you should go to it to cover it wearing a sweatshirt and sneakers, because it, there's nothing about it that's dignified. And I just sort of came away from that going, you know what? You know, you're you're pretending you're a gangster, which you're not. You're pretending you understand fashion, which you don't. Don't ever do that again. And I, I haven't.
0: You know, I will say, though, looking back, watching the highlights of that game, watching the game itself, it's interesting when you look into into the crowd, into the stands, and you see what people were wearing back then. I think it's also almost that 1980s style. You had people wearing the fur jackets. You had people who weren't as dressed up and everything, but you had the guy with the iconic white suit with the fedora. Now it's fans wearing jerseys. I mean, when did that kind of change?
1: Oh, I think the jerseys probably, they certainly came after that Mm -hmm. because the NFL had not yet figured out how to monetize everything a player has ever touched. But because it was a, a conference final, I think some people did get dressed up in ways that they wouldn't normally. Because at Candlestick, the fashion was make sure you're warm. yeah. Because you could freeze your butt off, you know, in, in the middle of the afternoon sitting in the sun there. I mean, you're on this ridiculously small spit of land that sticks out into San Francisco Bay is part of a wind tunnel. And if you don't dress in copious layers, you will Get hypothermia. So I think you know anybody you saw in the crowd that day that was dressed up was doing it only because it was that day. Under normal circumstances, they would have been wearing three different overcoats.
0: That makes sense too. Actually, I mean, look, that's the funny thing that people think. You know, it's not Lambo; we don't get the snow, but you know, you don't think California gets that cold. But we know that, especially at Candlestick with that wind tunnel, it gets pretty darn cold over there.
1: Oh yeah, it, it was it was major weather suck.
0: Now, the 49ers were an up-and-coming team facing an established powerhouse in the Tom Landry-led Dallas Cowboys team. But what was that energy like, and what were the storylines coming into the NFC Championship game?
1: Well, the the 49ers and Cowboys had had a brief rivalry at the beginning of the 70s, uh, but every time the Cowboys won. So the the, the main storyline was, can this upstart franchise, you know, beat the established power? And nobody thought they could because the 49ers had gone from two wins to six wins to 13 in three years under Bill Walsh. And nobody was quite sure, you know, if they were really as good as they let on or whether Tom Landry was, you know, still the established power in coaching. And for the most part that day, you know, Dallas more than held its own. And I don't know that anybody looked at that last drive and said, oh, the 49ers will absolutely score. There'll be no problem here because the Cowboys were very good, too. So I think the storyline going in was largely, you know, how does a team that's never beaten the Cowboys beat the Cowboys? And I think most people were skeptical that they could do it, which is one of the reasons why when it happened, it imprinted itself as indelibly as it did, because it was the first time the 49ers had ever come up against a really big game and won it.
0: Now, what people also forget, though, is that there was still time left on the clock after the catch, too. And the Cowboys, like you said, they were a damn good team. Did you feel like the game was over after the catch?
1: Um, Foolishly, I did think it was over because being on the field can kind of affect your judgment. And just the reaction to it just felt like this is this should be the final moment. So, you know, logically, I should have known better. um, But sort of not emotionally, but just sort of viscerally, I felt like that that's that's the thing that ends the game. And I turned out to be right for no good reason. But no, I, I, I got the sense that that catch finished it off. And again, I should not have felt that. And it's not like a, a triumph of logical reasoning, but I just felt like, yeah, this is done. Cause I don't think the Cowboys can, can come back. And they did.
0: You know, looking back at it, I wasn't there. And when I look back at the game, you just think it was a magical moment. But, you know, as I said, you were right there. So let's paint that picture. It's the fourth quarter. Niners were trailing 27-21 with 58 seconds on the clock. You see Joe Montana. Can you paint the picture and give us your perspective? We've seen the highlights. I've seen what Vin Scully has said. He painted a picture. But what did you see on the field?
1: i have never really thought about this. Um, I thought the 49ers would fail. You know, as good as Montana had been, he had not yet established, you know, his sort of, he'll figure something out wizardry yet, at least not in my mind and i thought that this drive was you know probably futile cuz i didn't think field goal doesn't help them they have to score and the cowboys had a very good defense and i didn't sort of look at this as you know a moment where the cowboys would fail i thought they would i thought they would hold and win the game so i was sort of you know watching this this drive unfold and I'm going well, they're starting to threaten. Now they're kind of threatening, but they're still going to have to do something special here. And when Montana got flushed out of the pocket on on the play, I thought it's going to break down right now because the Cowboys basically have turned him into a runner and having to throw the ball frantically. And I never thought for a minute, because I, you know, I, I didn't have sort of the fisheye view of everything, that Dwight Clark was the guy who you would throw to to make that play. I mean, I would have thought, I mean, this is how much I was wrong about everything. I would have thought that the guy that Montana would have looked for was Freddie Solomon, Right. but he and Clark had a simpatico and Clark, who was not like a great athlete, still figured out how to get open because there was a, you know, there was space between him and walls and Montana spotted him and threw it. And you know what happened, but my lizard brain thought that none of that would happen and that the Cowboys would hold and they we'd watch the game with them kneeling and killing the clock. So that's why you shouldn't be talking to me because I know nothing.
0: <laughs> well, you know, a lot. I know that you do. And I still love your perspective. And now there are people out there, especially those who don the silver and blue, who say that they think that Joe was throwing it away when he was throwing it to Dwight. What do you think?
1: if he was throwing it away, he chose the wrong direction (laughs) because if you're going to throw the ball away, you're going to throw the ball out of bounds. That ball was clearly inbound. So I don't think he was throwing it away, but he threw it in a way that if Clark doesn't come down with it, it can't be intercepted. So I think it was a safety pass more than it was an abandonment. If Montana was trying to get rid of the ball, he chose a bad way to do it.
0: I'm with you on that. I actually think that you know, if I if he was going to go out there and throw it away, he was running for his life, but he would have thrown it away earlier as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, because they're trying to they're trying to uh, protect clock. Mm-hmm. The the deep and profound beliefs of cowboy fans aside, the logic escapes
0: them. Well, they certainly won't forget it. Now that moment will forever live at Levi Stadium. We have the statue there, and I, you know, that relationship between. Montana and Dwight, that tandem is so special, especially to 49er, uh, you know, the 49er lore. What did you think of their relationship after the game? I didn't view it as a relationship.
1: I viewed it as two teammates, you know, doing a thing in a football game. I think they're, you know, maybe I was just numb to it, but I think their relationship, you know, developed, you know, largely after that. But I could be wrong because I was not one of those guys we spent a lot of time in the locker room trying to see who was sitting next to whom. I I think it was one of those moments that bonded them and they remained, they remained bonded after that. But at the time it never says, Oh, these are, these are the two best friends on the team getting together to, you know, unify it, unify a city in an area. I just thought it was quarterback throwing a wide receiver because he's the only option. my, whatever romantic, uh, or sort of friendship bond that was, you know, that was happening. It, it escaped me at the time. I just thought it was a football play.
0: And it was a great football play, one that lives in history. And, you know, it's called the catch. Do you think it was the greatest catch in football history?
1: There's always, the one thing about history is the longer it lasts, the, the more it is, you know, sort of glorified, but, there have been more famous catches. I mean, the, the David Tyree helmet catch mm-hmm. that helped the Giants win a Super Bowl is probably as big. You know, Willie Mays' catch in the 1954 World Series is still iconic. It's just the one thing that made this play special and not unique but special is that it was the first time that a franchise had known a level of success that it never had before. And that that's why it's still more special here than anywhere else it's a it's a local moment that also had the advantage of being very telegenic and it was sort of a historical moment because the 49ers went on to be the best team in football for 15 years so in that way yeah it's 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 a special moment but there have been other special moments and if the 49ers had gone on and lost to Cincinnati in the Super Bowl I don't know that it would have the same resonance, but it was basically the, the moment that the 49ers planted their flag as a great franchise, which is why it has the, 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 the resonance that it has today. It was, it was the defining moment in the start of a dynasty, and those could always get counted more than anything else.
0: Well, speaking of that, you know, I know how much you love hypotheticals, but do you think there would have been a 49ers dynasty if that play didn't happen?
1: I think quite possibly there would have been because it was an era in which there was not a salary cap and Eddie DeBartolo spent to you know, the level of his family's, you know, endurance more than so he would go out and he would He would go out and get more players that Bill Walsh wanted. The only thing that could have derailed it, I think, would have been either injury or Walsh, who was sort of a tortured soul, you know, quitting because he couldn't handle the defeat. Mm -hmm. But I think they were positioned well enough that they would have been good for a while, even if they hadn't pulled that off. So, you know, in some ways, I don't think it was a do or die moment. It was just a do moment.
0: Now, you've covered so many great sports moments, especially in the Bay Area. Is this the game that stands out as a favorite or most memorable in your career? Is there anything that tops it?
1: Oh, the Bird Magic game, the national championship game in 1979. Um, Yeah, there have been a number of them. This is among them, but it's not, you know, it's not head and shoulders ahead of all the others because when I'm covering an event I'm trying to detach myself from it so that I can get sort of a better sense of what it all means. Um, You know, and I, and I, you know, I've been lucky that in failing to die, I've seen a lot of stuff. (laughs) It's among them, but I don't think it's the most special because like I said, I, I've seen a lot of stuff, you know, I, I saw, I saw the Jordan shot in Utah that won a championship. Uh, You know, there's, there's just a lot of, you know, I have an old, Crackly resume. And there's a bunch of stuff on it where I've just been at a place where big things happened. I caused none of them to occur, of course, but <laughs> I was there for it. This was one of them, though.
0: Well, let's talk about your current resume right now. Right now, you're with 957 The Game. You have Damon Rado and Kolsky from two to six. You also work for Defector Media. Tell us a bit about that, what you do. Uh, let's first talk about Defector Media. What is it, and what are you doing there?
1: Uh, Defector is the resurrected dead spin that. Uh, disintegrated last year when the uh, the company that owned it basically turned on the people who worked there and wanted them to change the mandate under which they worked. And the people who worked there said, no, we're the ones who built this. We're not going to do that. And they quit en masse. And at the time, I was just a freelancer. So I was really just a spectator to what they did. And it took a while for them to sort of, you know, get over the, you know, the anger and the hurt and decide, you know what, why don't we do our own site and other people chased down, you know, the startup money, other people, you know, gathered and, and made the idea work that a, that a worker owned operation could be functional. And they asked me if I would join and I was free. So, you know, basically, it it's me uh, drafting behind a lot of smart, energetic, younger people and basically making money for doing the sort of nonsense I've always done. I'm a shameful little whore.
0: <laughs> well, let me tell you, I'm not just saying this because you're here, but you are one of my favorite writers. You have the best style. I'm just Always entertained, and I learned so much from from whatever you've written. You know, definitely check out Ray's work. You can go to his Twitter page at Rato Indy, R A T T O I N D Y. And then please tell everyone hi at 95.7 for me. I really enjoyed our time together there. I know we didn't get to work too much directly, only a few mornings when I was on the morning show there, um, and then run into each other and have some uh, great conversations in the what was the what's the room called? The sports hub?
1: Oh, Uh, You mean the Silo of Hell.
0: Is that what it's called now?
1: (laughs) No, I don't know. We haven't been in it since March. I
0: know, that's true.
1: I think they've probably named it something else. It's probably a storage closet.
0: No, no, I was thinking the Petri dish now. Oh, by now it probably is. Yeah, right. (laughs) Well, Ray, thank you so much for joining me, reliving the catch with me. So thank you so much for coming on.
1: Yeah, you too. And don't forget to hit the kids for me. Okay.
0: (laughs) A big thanks to Ray for joining the show. There's another part of the game that I think often gets missed. As I was re-watching the game, I'm listening to Vince Scully and then had to rewind when I heard that 49ers linebacker Keena Turner was playing the game with chicken pox. This is pre-chicken pox vaccination. I know because I wasn't born yet when this game was played and I had the chicken pox as a kid. Now, Tanner had confirmed the story, saying that he had blisters all over his body and his mouth. He practiced, played in the championship game, and then played in the Super Bowl with the chicken pox. He lost 15 pounds from the illness. Given the current state of our world, it seems so crazy to think that he was allowed to play in a contact sport with a contagious infection. I mean, I don't remember hearing anything about a serious bout of chickenpox in the NFL. You know, at that time, all the kids wanted to get it when they were younger because, you know, you get out of school despite being uncomfortable and itchy. But you also hear that it's way worse to get it as an adult. So I can only imagine how difficult it must have been for Kina being itchy and sick on the field and playing in the biggest game of your life. It was, it was truly a different time back then. Definitely different from what we're facing now but it's fascinating to see how sports and the world in general has evolved. But speaking of history, let's look at some other things that happened on January 10th in history. On January 10th, 1999, the hit television drama, The Sopranos debuted on HBO. Starring James Gandolfini as Tony Soprano, the critically acclaimed hit show instantly hooked its audience following Tony, his family, and a mob scene in New Jersey. It was The Godfather and Goodfellas on the small screen with actually some of the same actors. Now The Sopranos changed the landscape of television. While most shows at the time consisted of laugh tracks and happy ending dramas, The Sopranos gave television audiences what was usually reserved for the theaters, deeper narratives, more graphic violent and sexual scenes. It was intelligent, funny, raunchy, and appointment TV before binge-watching became part of our vocabulary. And it was a start to what many refer to as the golden age of television. How do you think The Sopranos has changed TV as we know it? I mean, look at some of the shows that came afterwards. You had Game of Thrones. You have now what Netflix has with their binge shows, which, by the way, I just watched in the matter of a few weeks, Cobra Kai, Queen's Gambit, and I'm now on Bridgerton. So lots of fun television shows going on. I do love watching my TV. Some great shows, some great writing going on out there. Enjoy your TV, everybody. But that will do it for today. Thank you again for listening to Sports Time Machine. If you enjoyed the show please subscribe and rate Sports Time Machine on iTunes. We're available on all your other favorite directories as well, like Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can also find the show at Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Anna Kagarakis—that's K that's K-A-G-A-R-A-K-I-S, and on Instagram at Anna Kags. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. Well, time flies when you're having fun. Thanks again to Ray Rada for joining me, and thank you for heading down memory lane with me. I'm Anna Kagarakis, and we'll talk soon.